So there's a lot of uh, young parents here at the church. You've got little ones, and uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this yet, where you're at a party, you're at somebody's house, you've got a bunch of people over, you put the child down, maybe there's multiple babies in multiple rooms all sleeping while you're trying to kind of have some adult conversation, and all of a sudden you hear one of the children crying, and, uh, and then one of the parents goes, oh, that one's mine. Do you remember that? Some of those of you who have raised children, you remember that? You're like, oh, that one's mine. I remember when our kids were little, when they were infants, Susan had this superpower where our family could, during Christmas time, lots of siblings, lots of noise, lots of talking, lots of laughing, things happening, and she could just be like, wait, 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 wait. Everybody would stop. Yeah, that one's mine. It's like a superpower. It's amazing. Just knowing the voice of your child. Now that little infant, that little infant knows, knows your voice, it recognizes it even from, from the womb. Some of you, many of you have had that experience. Uh, you have children and, and you talk to that little one and it turns its head when it hears, you know, it hears your voice. It recognizes your voice. It's amazing. This morning, our text is from John chapter 10, starting in verse 11, where Jesus famously says that, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then he goes on to say that we know his voice as his sheep, that we know it, that we hear it, that we recognize it, that we follow it. And so we're going to look at this text this morning, and we're going to see the goodness of his grace as we've been going through this series on the great I am. Who is he? What does that mean? Who is this God that we worship each and every Sunday? Seven times through John's gospel, Jesus specifically said, I am, and he he gave us another insight into who who he is and his goodness and his grace and his love. And each of those seven times that Jesus said, I am, he's he's causing us to think back to the Exodus chapter 3, the first time that God introduced himself as the great I am. Jesus is very intentionally connecting the dots for that original audience and saying, I am him. I didn't come to talk about God. I'm not just another prophet or another sage showing you the way to salvation. I am the way to salvation. I am him. I am the great I am. The one who has always been and who is and who will always be. John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand is not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He doesn't care about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will also listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And at that time, there was a feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him, and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is God's word. So Jesus says, we're his sheep, he's this good shepherd, he paints this great image, this picture for us to follow, get some insight into who he is and what he's like. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And what's even more amazing than coming to know Jesus is this astounding reality that Jesus knows you. To know something in English, it basically means to have information about it, knowledge of it, and awareness of it. But in this uh, ancient Near East culture, to know something meant to have like an intimate, there was an intimate knowing. There was a, you had, there's people that you know that are acquaintances, and, and then your spouses you know in a way that like you don't know anybody else. There's, there's students, if you're a teacher and you know your students, uh, but you know your children in a measure that you don't know the students. I mean, there's an increasing intimacy that comes with knowing. This is the knowing that Jesus is talking about uh, here when, when he says that he, we, he knows something. So he gives us this contrast in verse 11 between him as the good shepherd and the religious community being these hirelings. Now, years ago during the, the, the life of uh, King David, when King David was a shepherd, shepherds were, uh, it, was a, it was a reputable vocation. They were respected. But by the time Jesus had come along, the industry had shifted and shepherds were not respected. The Babylonian Talmud talks about shepherds in shady ways. These guys are thieves. You can't trust them. They're always drunk. They're ripping you off. They're not doing a good job. They're not going to care for the sheep. Jesus kind of alludes to that, right? A, a predator comes, and they're like, we're out of here. But back in King David's day, how's David talking about being a shepherd? If a lion or a bear came, I took my sling out. You see, the industry shifted. I think some of you can probably relate. It's like there was an industry at one point that was reputable, and perhaps today it has a different reputation. That was like shepherding. And so Jesus contrasts the kind of shepherd he is with the kind of shepherd that the religious community are kind of being. It's quite the juxtaposition. Because as the text folds out, here's what you get. You get that... Jesus was compelled to sacrifice himself for the sheep. Give himself for the sheep. The religious community, uh, they, they were manipulating and using their authority to burden the sheep. Two completely different things. And there's also a paradox here with Jesus you know, talking about himself as the good shepherd. Because he's the good shepherd that becomes the Lamb of God. He's the shepherd that becomes a sheep and gives himself as the ultimate sacrifice for the sheep. So he's, you know, creating this stark contrast. Later in verse 16, as the text flows down, he says there's one flock and there's one shepherd. And what he's saying by that is that this gospel, the goodness that you and I rest in, it's very personal. But it's also vast. This Sunday morning as we gather... We don't get together at KW Redeemer and celebrate that we're the only ones that are getting it right. There's one fold. There's one shepherd. 
And, around, and, and what Jesus is saying is, there's sheep that aren't of this fold. And he's talking to Israel. And at the time, that would have been really, really offensive to the religious community. Because they were like, hey, P.S., we're God's people. And Jesus is saying, P.S., there's going to be one fold. There are, going to be, there are going to be from every tribe, from every generation, from every nation, from every culture, from every people group, from every generation through time. Those are going to place their faith in me. And so, while that includes Israel, while that began with Israel, that transcends the borders of Israel to every culture. So Jesus is poking again at some of these, you know, religious sacred cows that the religious community have. Because one of the things that happens when you become uh, curved inward on yourself is if a church becomes curved inward on itself, if we as a community become curved in on, our, on ourselves and we, instead of waving a flag that says Christ alone, we want to wave a flag that says KW Redeemer, is we, we, you, you uh, become a kind of community of comparison and not compassion. And so Jesus is relating with, to the nations with compassion, the religious community related to all the nations with comparison. So they were so far off the script, because if you go back into history, the original intent of the, of the people of God was not for them to have a holy huddle and sing kumbaya. The reason they were, God selected them to be the people of God was they were supposed to be on an evan, evangelistic uh, crusade to all the other nations. The exodus out of Egypt wasn't done in a corner. Everybody knew about it. Everybody heard about it. They would travel to these other countries like Canaan, uh, Canaan and others, and they'd say, we heard about you. We heard about your God. It was evangelism, the Exodus. It's foreshadowing Christ who would come and do our evangelism, who would bring us in an Exodus out of uh, our sin and death, our, our death to sin. And so Jesus is here. He's juxtaposing these two things. He's making it crystal clear. as like this, re- this religious kind of idea... Uh, that's prevailing in the culture is nothing like the heart of God. I'm the good shepherd, and I've come to give myself for the sheep, and there's going to be one flock. And so the interesting thing about this one flock is that for, for those of you who may be struggling to believe, for those of you who may be searching or seeking, maybe you're not of Christian faith, or you have friends who aren't of Christian faith, the interesting thing about one flock is that you look through history and you realize that Christian faith, there isn't one culture that owns it. Christian faith isn't relegated to one region in the world. When you look at all the other world religions, even though they've kind of, um, they have uh, expanded, and there's, there's a sporadic uh, smattering globally of all other faiths, you can go to the, the core of those faiths and say, well, the core of, of uh, this particular faith is still in this particular geographic area. That's where it's concentrated. It's place of origin. It's still concentrated there. And you find world faiths work that way. With Christian faith, you don't find that at all. With Christian faith, because Jesus says there's one flock, one shepherd, it's not a particular culture that owns it. That's why it started with the Jews, but then it went to Greece and to Rome and to Africa and to all of Europe and to Latin America and eventually to North America and now today exploding across Asia. I mean, there are more believers in China than the population of this country. So there isn't one culture that owns Christian faith. You don't come into Christian faith and then adopt a kind of culture. Christian faith comes and permeates every culture, one shepherd, one flock. And that's one of the astounding distinctives of, Christi- of Christianity because the power of the Spirit, uh, it go- crosses all of these cultural borders and the grace of Jesus Christ is available uh, for all those who will call on his name. And so we see that. 
And so um, he, Jesus goes on to say in verse uh, 17 and 18, he makes this point and he says, you know, I'm the good shepherd and I've come, and I've come to do this majestic thing. But I've come to lay my life down. Nobody actually has the authority to take it. Did you notice that as I was reading that? He says, I've come to lay it down. Nobody has the authority to take it. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again. That is significant. And the reason it is significant is because Jesus Christ is the only king in all of history who established this kingdom by laying down power. See, the gospel is contrary to every other conceivable system because the systems of the world that you and I live in is you establish yourself by taking up power. You establish, if you look at world history and you look at all the kingdoms that have risen and fallen through world history, if you look at the wars that are happening around the world today that are over, uh, whether they're wars that are driven by uh, uh, political or geopolitical differences or religious differences or they have, every, or, or resource, uh, you know, uh, greed, uh, the desire for resource, for more land. You know, there's nothing new about it. It's, it. They're all different forms of power plays. In political philosophy, if you've studied political philosophy in Plato's Republic, he says, hey, if you want to have a just city, then what you do is you make sure that everybody has, a, has a food, shelter, and clothing, and then you don't need a government. And then, of course, all of the philosophers said to Socrates uh, when he said that, they said, well, we don't like that because we want luxury. We don't want, I don't want just a house that fits my family and clothes and food. I want luxury. And so then Socrates says, oh, you want luxury? Okay, well then what you have to do to have luxury is you have to take something that belongs to somebody else from some other region in the world. And then in order to make sure they don't come back and take it from you, you need a standing army. And then to have a standing army, you need a government. In order to have a government and to have the standing army in check, they have to be philosophical dogs, which means you have to feed them lies that they'll believe so that they'll bark at every, everybody else, but they'll bat down to their master. Even though the master is a tyrant, they don't care because they're philosophical dogs. So they're committed to the master, but they'll just bark at everybody else. To see, and, it's, and it snowballs. And then you end up with a 10-volume book called Plato's Republic. But, the, but when you boil it all down, it comes to what Jesus is saying here. I came not to exude my power. I came to lay it down. And it's profound because that is the, the gospel is upside down. Jesus Christ, the king who came to die, didn't come to be served, to serve. It's radical and it's powerful. And as his sheep who follow him... That has an impact on the life that we live. It is outward-facing. It's not curved in. When we say we want to be an outward-facing church in KW, it's not just like, well, this is nice verbiage. That sounds good on a website. Everybody's talking about being gospel-centered now. You know, it's the ministry buzzword to say that, you know, you're gospel-centered. I mean, it, it could just be fluff if we're not actually sheep that are reveling in what the Good Shepherd actually did. And the good news of the gospel is that in marveling at what the Good Shepherd did, by the power of the Spirit, he does beautiful things in us and we follow him, which is where this text goes. So, of course, there's this division. Well, as Jesus says this, um, there's a division and the religious leaders have a, have, a, have a problem with this. Some of them are saying, well, he's got a demon. And uh, then the others are saying, well, maybe he can't have a demon because he just healed a blind guy. And remember, and I mentioned this last week, the context of this, this whole teaching is that Jesus just healed a blind man. And, every, and the religious community is freaking out about it. Right? They're not dancing and celebrating. This guy was blind from birth. But religious people, they're weird ducks. So they can't just celebrate and be like, this is amazing. He's, he must be God. He's doing the works of God. 
follow him, let's worship Jesus. They're like, ah, we think you have a demon. Um, and so, so they have this reaction, which is interesting, because religious people always ask the wrong questions. They're like, hey, how come your disciples don't wash their hands? And, wow, great question. You know I just fed 5,000 people, right? Yeah, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to know why they don't wash their hands. And Jesus heals a blind man. And it's amazing how he does it as well, which is significant. Because in this particular account, if you read chapter 9, um, he spits in the mud. Why would he do that? You know? He doesn't need to do that. Doesn't need to, and, and, and the text is amazing. It's like, and he, and he spit in the mud and he went to the ground, right? He goes to the ground. Um, he's really trying to help these religious folks out. He's like, okay, I'm going to go to the dirt. That should remind you of something. And I'm, so I'm going to bring restoration now. So in the beginning, because again, the great I am, the one who's always been, seven times through John, I am, I am, I am. So he says, okay, well, there was a time where God went to the dirt and he created something. So I'm going to go to the dirt and I'm going to restore something. And I'm going to see if you can connect these dots. And of course, many people are connecting the dots, but the religious community can't connect these dots. Hey, what'd you do that on Sunday for? Of all the days of the week, oh, sorry, Saturday, you know, of all the days of the week, you could have healed a guy. You had to pick the Lord's day. Yeah. Thought it would put an exclamation point on the miracle to do it on the Lord's day. Do you see this? It's incredible. And so then they go on and the text unfolds and, and they say in verse 25, I would have read it, you'll recall this. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us. Right? He says, I told you. Show us. I showed you. Prove it. I've proven it. I keep proving it. I'm continually proving it. And this teaches us something profound about the God that we worship. You know, there's a cultural conversation about God, like he's a mean, angry ogre in the sky with a two-by-four, and the moment you step out of line, bang, he just knocks you unconscious and says, well, I guess you're going to hell now. I mean, that's how most people think about God. But look at, look at our God. Our God... Jesus' response was not, no, I'm not going to prove it to you. Jesus' response was, I've been proving it to you. I literally just proved it to you again. I went to the dirt. Did you notice that? No? Okay. Well, don't worry. I'm not done. I'll do some more miracles. From the beginning, God has been repeatedly, miraculously, openly, globally, historically pointing to himself and his grace so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans chapter 10. Jesus was not conducting private miracle services in some backwater town in the middle of the desert so nobody would know he was doing it. He, he was openly revealing himself as the God of all creation. Jesus was not trying to hide himself from the religious community. He was blatantly, and any community, he was blatantly doing these, these great works. In John chapter 3, you've got one of the Pharisees, his name is Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus at night and because he's afraid of, the, of his buddies, and he asks about salvation. And that famous passage of scripture, that even folks who've never darkened the doors of a church have probably heard it and could quote it. When Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said that. Jesus preached the gospel originally, to an audience of one. That was said to one person. And that one person 
was a Pharisee. See, we don't have a God who's trying to hide himself, who's unjust, cultural conversation about, like, I'm I'm just going to send people to hell. No way. Our trajectory for all of us is hell, which is an eternity apart from God, and all of us are born wanting that exact thing. We, We are born wanting separation from God. We're born not wanting God. And God, in this upside-down gospel, the king who came to lay his life down and die, the God of the the great upside-down is coming into our mess to save us from our trajectory. But the religious mindset is, prove it. And we still struggle with this today. It's incredible. When you think about... Uh, the resurrection. Paul is before Rome. You can track this in human. You, you can track this through human history. You can go to the Bible and you can see him talking to King Agrippa. But you can go outside the Bible to the Roman uh, Roman antiquity and you can see where Paul had to appear before Agrippa. Later, he had to appear before Nero. He was sent there. This is just world history. And Paul says to these Roman emperors, "This is not a work of fiction. This is world history." Paul says to them. And this is our quoting this now from Acts. These things weren't done in a corner. Whether you are looking at the world on an astronomic level or a subatomic level, you keep seeing the fingerprints of God everywhere. You keep finding incredible precision. You keep finding the anthropic principle where life is on a razor's edge, where there is a creator. He's constantly trying He's constantly offering. He's constantly extending. We're like these religious Pharisees. Maybe you have friends, loved ones, kids who are like, prove it! And all around us, God is continually saying, I, I'm give, I, am, I have proven it. And I'm continually giving you the signs to look and to see that my fingerprints are everywhere. That the universe that you are in, the air that you are breathing, everything is pointing to astounding precision, astounding intentionality, not blind, random, purposeless collocation of molecules. And so Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. And it culminates to this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And uh, there's this woman named Judith, uh, Judith Fain. She was a PhD candidate at the University of Durham. And as she was studying, she would spend months in Israel. And she, while she was in Israel, she saw three shepherds walking with, uh, with uh, their sheep, leading their sheep. And they noticed they saw each other, so they started waving. And they met in the field, and they were talking. And as they were talking, all of the sheep intermingled into one big massive flock. And when I was in Ethiopia, I got, had the privilege of watching little shepherds uh, herding sheep and it's 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 uh unbelievable uh, sheep and goats and different animals these little kids with little sticks just kind of herding them along the street and i got to watch it and see how they do that but any, at any rate these th- these these uh sheep they all intermingle into one flock when the shepherds were finished their conversation one by one the shepherds started calling to their sheep and one by one the sheep who could hear their own shepherd's voice separated themselves from the flock and all three flocks walked away in three different directions. I read that and I thought, no, nah, that's unbelievable. I want to see that. And so I started doing research and looking for videos where I could find, you know, I want to see this. Has anybody recorded this? And I found a video from this in Norway of uh, this field with about 30 sheep. And there was a shepherd. He was standing there. 
and uh, he had these little kids come by to call, try and call the sheep. So the kids would come by and yell, and they were yelling at the sheep and trying to call the sheep, and the sheep were eating. The sheep didn't even lift their heads. And one after the other, after the other, after the other, these different voices were calling the sheep, and the sheep just didn't respond. And then the shepherd called out, and the moment that the shepherd's voice called out across the field, all of the heads came up out of the grass. And the shepherd kept calling and calling and calling, and then about 15, 20 seconds later, all the sheep ran in to the shepherd, and they were walking around the shepherd, and I got to watch it. I thought it was... It was astounding. Now, the reason I share that is because in the original context that this was written, when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me, they would have understood that sheep didn't stay in one place. And I talked about this last week. Sheep, sheep had to always be on the move because in the regions where this text was written, in the ancient Near East, grass could be green one day, but not necessarily the next day, not necessarily the next week. So the sheep had to know the shepherd's voice to be led. So it was being led by your shepherd was not static, it was dynamic. And we, as God's sheep, being led through our life, being led in our marriages and our parenting, your life on campus, in your vocation, being led through the challenges you have to deal with on Monday, being led and navigated through the hardships and the trials of life is a dynamic process of being led by the shepherd's voice. And it's where our life is constantly on the move. And sheep lived their lives learning the voice of the shepherd and following the shepherd to the next place where they would be nourished and how they would be and uh, how they would be nourished. So when we look at this passage and we, we look at how Jesus unpacks all of this, that gives us this picture, the passage reveals that front to back, the Christian faith is entered and enjoyed and sustained all by grace. He gives us his life by grace, demonstrating he's the good shepherd, and that's what the gospel is. But those of us who are his, we will increasingly desire to follow the good shepherd because that's what the gospel does. Now, we follow him imperfectly because we're sinful, but we follow him increasingly because we're his. Sheep get lost all the time, they wander all the time, they get stuck in holes. They get, they, sheep are led around by their stomachs. They see grass up on a rock, they're like, you know, that looks pretty good. And they climb up there, and you know, if the shepherd doesn't rescue them, they fall to their deaths. This happens all the time. Sheep, sheep are led around by their appetites. And you and I are led around by our appetites. And so we have a good shepherd who's constantly chasing after us and drawing us back by the goodness of his grace. So... It is not following the good shepherd that ushers you into the goodness of his grace. You follow the good shepherd because you have already been brought into the goodness of his grace. This is what the text gives us. It is this picture. We're not following and imitating and resembling the good shepherd in order to become his. You and I desire to follow and imitate and resemble the good shepherd because we are his. Now, the legalists... We'll look at a text like this, or listen to what I just said, about it, it being uh, us being his on the, by sheer grace, and they'll say, well, you need to follow Jesus in order to be accepted by Jesus. And that's false. That's the anti-gospel. You don't follow Jesus in order to be accepted by Jesus. We follow because we are accepted. But then over in the other ditch, you've got lawless people masquerading as Christians. And the lawless crowd will say, well, you can enjoy the grace of Jesus and live in utter contradiction to Jesus. Just enjoy grace and have no desire to follow the shepherd, and it's fine. 
And that's not what Jesus teaches. So I don't know what that is, but that's weird. That's not Christianity. And I'll tell you that the reason why this is important and why I want to put this on the ground as we prepare to close is because some of the hurdles that you have sharing the goodness of grace with folks who are, have honest questions, intelligent questions, struggling to believe in Christ, is they're thoroughly distracted by people who name the name of Christ, but have no desire or resemblance to Christ. And what I mean by that is uh, that, for example, it, it could be throughout church history, as I've shared the gospel with people and I sit down with friends who struggle to believe, a lot of things always come up, whether it's the, um, uh, you know, whether it's the violent atrocities of the religious zealots during the Crusades, whose actions are in a total, direct, total opposition to the nature of Christ, the teaching of Christ, or the life of the Good Shepherd, right? Or whether it's um, those who uh, were professing Christians who owned and sold slaves church, throughout world history, which owning and selling slaves is, di- is clearly and directly forbid in the Scriptures. It's totally contradictory to the Good Shepherd. But yet they named the name of Christ and they did it. It's a thorough distraction for people. Uh, whether it's that or whether it's people who oppressed or abused women, either, in the, either uh, throughout history or today, the names that continually come up in the media, people who have either oppressed or abused women, and that, that's a thoroughly confusing message to say, they're, they're, they say, yeah, I'm all about grace, but I have no, no desire to follow or live according to uh, the life of the one who... Uh, is the good shepherd who's brought me in by grace. It's a distraction. It's confusing for our folks. Or whether it's those who are on social media who consider themselves, they've kind of like these self-appointed public relations people for God, and they spew either racism or misogyny or uh, you know disdain for the poor or heartlessness toward outcasts or anger towards refugees or they're hating people who don't share the crystal, Christian uh, sexual ethic. Or they're bowing down and adopting the world's constantly shifting sexual ethic. And all these things. Or it's, it's thoroughly confusing. When those who name the name of Christ, but then live with indifference to following the voice of Christ, thoroughly confuse those who are genuinely and thoughtfully wrestling with reasons to believe in Christ. And I am not talking about Christians struggling with sin. Because everybody in this room struggles with sin. So that's not what I'm referring to whatsoever. I'm not talking about Christians who struggle with sin, but I'm, I'm talking about those who give lip service to Jesus with, and, but have no desire to actually follow Jesus. And so how is it that we hear this voice? It's through the Word and the Spirit working powerfully together. I pray that each week. How do you hear the voice of the shepherd? You learn to hear the voice of the shepherd the way you learn any other voice. How do you learn the language of the Spirit and the guidance of the Spirit? It's the way you hear any other voice. It's a voice that's coming outside you. You have little babies in this church that will learn English because they're going to be surrounded by people constantly speaking words of English to them. And so we have God's Word and we meditate on God's Word and we read God's Word for ourselves, with our family, at our, around our dinner tables. And as we're constantly having that word come to us, we begin to recognize the voice of the shepherd because it's a word outside us coming to us. Uh, some folks talk about hearing the voice of God like they have God on FaceTime. Well, that's problematic, you know. And God's told me in the shower, go here and you'll find a parking space and go there and whatever. And being the reason, why that's, the reason why that's problematic is because I can only find two or three places in the whole New Testament where the Spirit speaks in an audible voice. And he's not erratic, he's consistent. Every time the Spirit speaks, he's saying, go here and share the gospel with these people. 
right? Separate from me, Barnabas and Saul, and go and share the gospel with those people. I mean, the, when the Spirit speaks in an audible voice, it's always some form of go share the gospel. And when the Spirit is leading, not in an audible voice, it is always either the sharing of the gospel, the ministering to the poor, the loving guidance of the Spirit that looks like the life of the Good Shepherd. That's the, it's not confu- the voice of the Spirit is not confusing. It's consistent. And so the way for us to consistently know that we're hearing and then be led is, number one, through that outside word that's coming to us. But we don't want to fall in the ditch and say there's no inward witness and we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. So let's make the Trinity, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Whew, there, good. Now we won't be weird. No. There is an inward witness and guiding of the Holy Spirit. That's what the text says. We hear his voice and we follow him. But the inward witness and guidance of the Holy Spirit is that he is the Lord of our conscience. Romans tells us that the law of God is written in every human heart. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put, in, put eternity in the human heart. And 1 Timothy 4 tells us that we can sear our conscience by, you know, just forsaking God. So he is the Lord of the conscience. So what he does is we've got the word of God coming to us from outside us. We've got the Lord of the conscience, the Holy Spirit inside us, guiding us. Both of those things are a witness that lead us into lives that look like loving caring, serving, outward-facing. To love the poor, the outcast, the downtrodden, the widow, and the orphan is to be spirit-led. To be generous with your time and your life, to give your life away with, with, within whatever it is the gifts are that God has given you, to, to care for others is to be spirit-led. To not build an idolatrous wall around your heart that says, me first, I need all of my time, I need all of my resources, to, to break that idolatrous wall down and to love others, that is being led by the Spirit. That is to hear the voice. That is to follow the Good Shepherd. This is, the, this is uh, what the text gives us. We hear his voice and we follow him. This beautiful picture of imitation. There is, by the power of the Spirit and the Word working together in you, as Thomas Chalmers would say it, there is an expulsive power of a new affection. The power of the Spirit and the Word together, as we gather together corporately to be reformed by the goodness of His Word, by the power of His Spirit, or whether around your dinner tables, at home with your families, the Holy Spirit is expelling things that you used to love, and He's giving you new loves. He is recalibrating your heart from loving your sin and your darkness to, to loving to live in the light of His love. God is not intimidated by your sin. He's not intimidated by your darkness. He rushes into your sin and your darkness to renew your heart and to, so that you will, you will forsake it. That is to follow the voice of the shepherd. And I'm going to close with this. In verse 29, Jesus says, My father is greater than all, and nobody can snatch them out of my father's hand. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. I and the father are one. He gives this radical, confident, irreversible uh, picture of the kind of grip that he has on you in his great grace. This is what we rest in. We have to rest here. The religious community said, what? You and the Father are one? Stone him. What? Nobody can take you out of God's grip? Stone him. But Jesus says, no. I and the Father are one. The message of God's grace is like music to ears. To those who know we need God's grace, it's like nails on a chalkboard if we... We don't want God's grace and we want to be our own God. But Jesus' announcement, I and the Father are one, you are in my grip. It's a gracious offer. 
it simultaneously announces that as he is offering salvation, I'm incapable of procuring my own salvation. If he's the good shepherd, then that's a simultaneous announcement. I can't be my own shepherd. If he's going to lead me faithfully and reliably, that's a simultaneous announcement that my heart can't lead me faithfully and reliably. We're in his grip. This is the good news. It assures you that God's loving you and accepting you and calling you his own is not hanging in the balance based on your vacillating grip, based on your vacillating faith, based on your vacillating trust, or whether you trust Christ one day and you don't trust him the next day, or you, you trust him when you're healthy, but when you're sick and laying in bed and crying, you're like, is there a God? And your salvation is not hanging in the balance when that happens. When your children are sitting around the table praying with you and loving Jesus, or your children run off and do craziness and they're not serving the Lord, but yet they, they place their faith, they've been baptized into Christ, the good news of the gospel is... We are in his grip. We are not in his grip on the basis of the strength of our faith. We are in his grip irreversibly, he said it, on the basis of his faithfulness. And so for those of you who have loved ones and kids who are not right now with the God, you come to God in prayer and you pray and you say, Thank you, God, that my children have been baptized into Christ and that they place their faith in you, Jesus. And though while they are wandering like lost sheep up on some cliff someplace, trying to feed themselves on some crazy thing that they think is going to satisfy them, oh God, would you by your great grace draw them to you. They are in your grip. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what we hang on to. There are seasons in all of our life where our faith is weak. There are seasons in our life when our faith fails. But Christ has united himself to you, and he says he will never fail. He says, well, we might be dumb like sheep, we might get lost, but he says, we are his, and we will not be ultimately lost. If you want to argue with me and fight me on this after the service, bring it on, because these are his words. He said this. It's radical. You're in my father's grip. No one will take you out. You're in my grip. No one will take you out. I and the father are one. End quote, Jesus Christ. Man, that is the good news of the gospel. If anybody has any better news, I'd love to hear it. The good news of the gospel is beautiful. And so church, though our lives are under the constant threat of unrest, we belong to Jesus, the good shepherd who leads our souls into rest. And his word and his spirit guide us. But more amazing than coming to know Jesus is the astounding reality that Jesus knows you. Let's pray.